Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to Pathway to Peace on the Voice of Islam radio station. Back in August this year, the world saw an incredible feat when the Spanish women's football team beat England in the Women's World Cup, hosted in Australia, with a 1-0 win. This was a huge moment, not only for Spain, but for many women in general in the world of sport. The cup final attracted record television viewings, figures of for women's football from all over the world, capping off a tournament which had also drawn record number of fans at the stadiums. The BBC announced a peak audience of 12 million viewers on BBC One, higher than fans at the men's Wimbledon final in July, which peaked at 11.3 million. And in Spain, it peaked at 7.4 million viewers, the highest ever TV audience in Spain for a women's football game. Globally, it reached an audience of about 2 billion viewers. And while many were jubilant and in a celebratory mood, they also witnessed the event that took place during these celebrations, where Luis Rubiales, the Football Federation president, publicly kissed one of the Spanish players, Jenny Hermoso, on the lips after the win. A kiss which Jenny Hermoso says was not consensual. It was a moment broadcast live around the world and a thunderous storm of criticism followed. So what should have been a time of great celebration has actually been overshadowed by a sexism scandal that has dominated global headlines. So we here on Pathway to Peace, a show where we take an analytical look at how we can achieve political, economic, societal, and inner peace, thought it would be interesting to look at this issue of consent with regards to when and how others touch you and the lines or boundaries of what is and is not acceptable. And how clarity on these issues can help bring peace between men and women and society as a whole. I'm your host, Hafia Khan, and joining me to help discuss this topic today are Anne-Marie Ionesco, a medical doctor and mother of two, and Melissa Amadi, a religious studies teacher and mother of two. Assalamu alaikum and welcome, ladies. Wa alaikum salam. So, when we talk about consent, what are we actually talking about? What do we mean? Anne-Marie? So I guess consent can be, there's a couple of different ways to consent for something. So for example, in hospital wire work, um, you might consent for a procedure, um, you know, and that can be written consent, but also verbal consent uh, or implied consent, where, for example, a patient can sort of put out their hand if if you've told them you need to take blood tests from them. Mm-hmm. Um, where men and women interact on a social basis, this is probably where the line becomes quite blurred. Okay, so how how have these lines become blurred? I mean, what are the social boundaries that used to be there? And, you know, what kind of situation are we in today um, with regards to, to what we know about consent? I mean, I guess it wasn't that long ago where it would see it was seen as being really improper for a man to touch the hand of a woman who he wasn't related to. So handshaking, for example, was, you know, completely out of the question. Um and, you know, there, there were very clear boundaries, particularly, uh, particularly for the upper classes of society in the UK, where the rules and cultural norms were guarded by the expectations of society in that men and women didn't freely or intimately interact with each other outside of the context of marriage and the family. Yeah, yeah. Um but, you know, cultural practice have since changed quite a lot in the past hundred years or so. Um, and after the First World War, men and women were more freely intermixing in society and they especially engaged more in relationships outside of marriage, particularly after World War II. 
Um, you can argue a lot of this has been caused by, you know, women entering into the workforce during World War II to provide labor for all of the manufacturing for the war effort um, whilst the men were away fighting. But generally, the roles of women in society were pretty strictly defined in the UK and possibly in, in, in a unique way because women were often involved in work in other societies, you know, for, for hundreds of years before, such as in the textile industry where they could work from home or in farming prior to the Industrial Revolution. But after work became purely an out-of-home uh, endeavor, then women were unable to engage in as much work because they had to care for children. Um, and you weren't able to work alongside that as, mm -hmm. you know, as as work was more outside the home. So once this changed, women were more directly involved in industrial work during World War Two, And so it changed the societal expectations of women quite quickly. Although, they, you know, that there, there is nothing wrong with women entering the workplace, but it seems that this was the main sort of catapult for the changing relationships of men and women in public. Mm -hmm. And after this, with the feminist movement and the second wave of feminism, you know, the boundaries between men and women again became even more blurred. And it was seen as liberating to be promiscuous and engage in multiple relationships outside of marriage. Um, you know, with this in mind, it's natural for the formal behaviors in public to change between men and women if you're going to allow that to happen. Yeah, yeah. So if we go back like specifically to this issue of consent, where actually is the clarity as to what is or is not allowed and acceptable today? I guess uh, consent at the moment was largely bound, bounded by cultural norms. So there was no mm. question about, you know, the need for consent if the boundaries that were set by culture were very clear. Mm -hmm. So as we mentioned before, you know, even for a man to touch another woman's hand or to engage in a discussion about courtship and marriage, one would have to ask the consent of the woman and her father who can then chaperone that kind of engagement or that mm -hmm. interaction. Um and for physical in inter interaction, you know, consent needed to be to be sought, and that would end up going down the road the the road of engagement and marriage. Mm -hmm. So that was very strictly defined in in the British and, and Western culture, not so so long ago. But now our culture has changed so much that it's considered normal to hug and shake hands with, and even to sit on a man's lap if 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 they know them quite well. So things have changed a lot. So then, so are you saying that actually, you know, that there's no longer any actual clarity on on what consent is on, on this particular issue? I guess so. I think social boundaries have been blurred uh, to such an extent where I think a lot of men, you know, in the social context get confused, um, you know, in terms of when they're interacting with women, they're they can, it can get confusing um, with regards to where that boundary might lie you know, mm -hmm. where culturally there's quite a great laxity in what they can do in, in a woman's social space. For example, as I said, they can hug them and do those things, which is seen as acceptable, though not acceptable in the past, but it's seen acceptable now mm -hmm. if they personally know her, uh, unless a woman is quite clear and forthrightly steps out to say, no, you know, I'm not comfortable with you in my space or somehow makes it very clear. Which isn't so easy always, is it? So Yes, yeah. exactly. Then it becomes a bit difficult to navigate this space um, mm -hmm. where the rules aren't as clearly defined anymore. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I suppose the general culture expectation, I, I think now the general culture expectation is that any physical touching of a woman on her torso, so from her neck down to her knees, without explicit or, you know, implicit consent would be deemed inappropriate. 
um, and any sexual approach is also a bit difficult if if there is this perception that the man and the woman is willing to proceed in an interaction but without saying it out loud then it just becomes mm -hmm. it becomes a bit you know it, it becomes a bit blurred in this kind of cultural um, non-muslim context mm -hmm. so it's become more difficult it less clear to navigate this area where there used to be very strict behavioral expectations between men and women mm -hmm. um, but you know it would reduce the chance of any confusion back in the day particularly when there's a chaperone involved and there's someone else involved in that interaction yeah yeah definitely I mean if we look if we go back to the incident that I mentioned earlier you know Spanish football kiss you know all the other players uh, were actually kissed on the cheek or hugged and and nobody complained about that as as that's actually acceptable within society Yeah, so I think this particular incident surprised uh, was surprising on quite on a couple of fronts. So one in that you know off the back of the Me Too movement not too long ago, it's surprising to see a male president be so forward and physical with a female player in this way. Yeah, you know, have men who, uh, who have a public profile not yet learned that they must be careful. You know, yeah. have they not yeah. seen you know what's mm -hmm. what's happened with men in a similar public profile what's happened to them when they've kind of been in a similar-ish situation yeah. um, and you know have they not learned that behavior like this is risky even in the context of celebrating yeah. um, but you know at the same time I do I find it a bit hypocritical to suggest it's only the responsibility of the man in this case where up until the point of the kiss she she allowed him to hug her and basically caress her and they're they're so close to each other's face they're literally yeah. inches away from each other's face that to suddenly be surprised that something like that could happen seems a bit silly mm. you know if you let a man be that close to you um and in you know you've let him you've let him come so close to you to the point you've dropped your guard to such an extent you're centimeters away from each other um and you think this is acceptable in our culture now But then that going going further with the kiss or being surprised that that could have happened, then there, I feel like there's something seriously wrong and deranged about how men and women interact nowadays where you think it's that acceptable to hug and to caress and do all those things yeah. um, in that context. So I think we've kind of gone really far, far and kind of strayed away from what we were before. Yeah. And, and you know, to the point where where there is, like you said, no clarity you know you are that close to someone physically um uh, what else do you you know expect to happen in that particular situation there's no clarity of what will or will not happen um and sometimes people find you know people often find it difficult to control emotions in that particular situation so i think you know those things all have to be taken into account when looking at this discussion melissa what do you think about this yeah i think just thinking about another example about Maybe in different cultures, there's, of course, there's different ways of greeting people. Mm -hmm. So not just in this Spanish context of what we're talking about here in, to do with the Women's World Cup, but in the wider world, there is a culture of, you know, kissing on the cheeks when meeting or greeting someone from mm -hmm. the opposite gender. That is quite widespread across the world. And mm -hmm. um, even if it's the first time meeting someone, it doesn't really matter, you know, irrespective of that person's being that person being married or not married mm -hmm. um, or their relationship status. That seems to be the norm. Um, and like Anne-Marie said, it is confusing in this society to know what is deemed appropriate for for both sexes, men and women, mm -hmm. um, or whether to refrain completely and be seen as rude. 
because um, mm-hmm. I've been in that situation before where I've said no sorry you know I, we, we don't shake hands um, mm-hmm. between opposite genders and handshaking is another one um, in formal settings like um, going for a job interview for example or meeting someone for the first time it's quite common for anyone to uh, put their hand out to you um, and from an Islamic perspective Muslim men and, and women wouldn't shake hands or hug or physically touch in any way um, with the opposite gender Mm-hmm. irrespective of their marital status or not that that's quite a clear-cut boundary and I think that that works both ways for men and women um and everyone knows where they stand then and I think it's really important like we've been talking a lot about confusion mm-hmm. and it's important to have some clear-cut rules otherwise you know no one knows what they're doing no one knows what they're doing or where they stand yeah yeah um, and Marie what, what does Islam say about this I mean, I think it's uh, it's similar to, you know, what Melissa was saying that, you know, in the, from the Islamic perspective, if you're not married or um, within sort of the immediate uh, blood relation or in-law relation other than your brother-in-law within Islam, you can't physically touch um, mm-hmm. the opposite gender. And there is no ambiguity in this regard, like Melissa said, you know, the the hijab and dressing modestly, so the head covering for Muslim women encompasses not just um, like a head covering. It's just it's not just a cloth that you use to cover your head. Mm-hmm. You know, it also encompasses behavior. So that includes yeah. the behavior of men um, behaving modestly, women behaving modestly in society as well. And they ha- both men and women have the same expectations for interacting with the opposite gender in public. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, you know the interaction of men and women in public in Islam is is kind of like <clears throat> probably the equivalent to a professional working relationship, which is a lot more formal. Yeah. Um. But there is, you know, you know, there's um, there's ease in conversation and dialogue. So there's no awkwardness in dialogue really once you have a professional relationship going. But it is more formal. Mm-hmm. Um. And even inappropriate comments, let alone physical interaction, is very much frowned upon or considered improper in Islam. So catcalling mm-hmm. and in- inappropriate jokes and innuendos are a complete no-no for Muslims. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, then that makes it clear, you know where you stand um, and there's no there's no sort of questions about where is the line here. So, So just thank you for that. So you're listening to Pathway to Peace on the Voice of Islam radio station. And today we're discussing the issue of consent. Is there some clarity on this issue or has the line been blurred? So in society, on the one hand, we have women fighting for the right to have basically autonomy over their own bodies with regards to who touches them, when and how, and quite rightly. And on the other, we have situations that are going on like in France um, earlier this month, where at the start of the academic year, state schools turned away dozens of girls from entering schools for wearing the abaya, the loose-fitting long robe worn by Muslim women as part of their modest dress. Again, another example of taking away their autonomy to wear what they wish. Why is there this dichotomy in society regarding women? Why are we at this point today? Anne-Marie? I think the two situations that you mentioned, um, so like the, the abaya debate in France, um, and you know the sexual harassment of women uh, generally speaking I think they have two different root causes mm-hmm. um, th- I think the issue about women's bodily autonomy and reducing sexual harassment is a, a an age-old problem um, it's you know it's not something that ha- is a recent phenomenon it's been going a- around for a long time 
um, and it's reared its head particularly in this age where, you know, as we said earlier, cultural norms have turn been turned on their heads. So the natural cultural boundaries, which would keep women and particularly men's behavior in check, are largely no longer there. Um, and educating men and boys, as well as women, about their responsibility in ensuring societal peace is important. Um, in the Muslim community, particularly the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, they talk about this uh, in view of what we call tarbiyat or moral training, where we're taught about, um, you know, where where we discuss the issues of um, moral behavior in public, particularly when engaging with the opposite gender. You know, where where are we taught about moral training in school anymore? It's something mm. that it's not really something that's talked about outside of the more controversial topics like abortion and capital punishments. Um, and, you know, these scenarios are pretty, you know, they're pretty, they're much rarer now than the general day-to-day -day interaction of people in society. Mm. Um, so the day-to-day -day living moral training isn't something we talk about as much anymore. But yeah, the the, the debate between harassment and wearing the abaya, I think they have two different causes. And I suppose that's a long debate what's going on in France. And that's probably another issue for another show. But yeah, yeah. Um, yeah slight, sl slightly different issues. But but they look like they come from a similar kind of origin, but actually, I would argue that they're a bit different. Yeah, 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 Melissa? definitely. I mean, I, my experience of um, being in schools um, as a religious studies teacher, um, I'll be here just for a short time, but the frustration was quite widespread amongst teachers that I'd met that there was never enough time in school or the curriculum given to discuss these issues and to discuss what's going on in the world from a moral standpoint. Um, you know, despite even religious studies being compulsory in secondary schools, it's usually just one lesson a week. Um, and sometimes it can be, it can even be compressed down to a day every half term. So it's really not that um that that regular enough for young people in particular who do have questions about this to fully talk about it and get different perspectives on it. And I think Increasingly, we're, of course, in the West, we're living in a more increasingly godless society. And when there's not enough time with young people discussing these moral issues and having that proper training about these important issues, that will affect them. Of course, it'll, it'll play out in society, not just in France, but um, this this is spreading in, in other countries as well. I, I think a lot of people are just confused. And then they turn to unreliable sources on social media, for example, or just the mm -hmm. internet in general which of course that has massive um, detrimental consequences. Um, we can see things like, you know, toxic masculinity. I think um, Pathway to Peace has done a show on this mm -hmm, topic yeah. um, specifically. And we can see how that plays out when there's just not enough time given, especially amongst young people to talk about these things. Mm. And, you know, what Anne-Marie was saying about what's going on in France is it's a clear example of this and trying to remove religion out of the conversation um, and studying it in schools, it clearly creates this um, this culture of intolerance as well, mm -hmm. which I think is the core the core problem here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just to add to that, I think uh, the issue in France with the girls being banned from wearing, you know, their chosen clothing stems. Well, th the excuse that the the French government would say is that it it. Um, it kind of goes against their concept of secularism and in the name of secular secularism everyone must be the same mm -hmm. um and so as i say this is the excuse given 
but I feel it's coming more from a place of insecurity, um, you know, of not feeling comfortable with anything that's different from typical French Western culture. Um, and instead of living to tolerate others' ways of life, you know, they try to restrict people's dress and behavior to make everyone more like themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and this must come from a place of insecurity, because if one was secure with, with yourself, then you wouldn't think twice about letting another person live the, the life that, the way they, they want. So, you know, it doesn't, it would, it shouldn't really bother you, but clearly it bothers them. So they yeah. try and regulate it with law. But I mean, we could say, um, and and this is this is proven as well, and we can see this. We can see examples of this that in Muslim countries, when a Western person goes, they would be expected to cover up, um, you know, wear modest clothing. So why shouldn't a Muslim person be prevented from dressing in a way that is too Islamic in secular countries? So I guess I mean, one needs to ask yourself what the root cause and the root kind of real question here and the real question I think is what would do society greater harm you know mm-hmm. which one um, you know say if a, a society provo- promotes nudity and promiscuity through clothing um, is that does that cause more harm than one that encourages modesty mm-hmm. um, which which one is ultimately more harmful so the two comparisons aren't the same. So, mm. you know, asking um, Western people to dress more modestly, it's not the same as asking someone to take off their clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason reasoning given to encourage modest clothing in Muslim countries is actually a positive societal reason. Um, you know, it's the, the it's trying to improve societal peace and in, uh, kind of overall um uh, improve the the kind of relationship with all members of society um but the reasoning given to to reducing the the sort of the way a muslim woman might decide to choose to dress uh to the point where they say it's too islamic you know it has no desired intention it has no benefit you know in that regard the only the only benefit as they see it is to try to make everybody look the same through the the name of secularism yeah. so in in my eyes and i think somebody looking outside into the situation in france there the two scenarios and two situations are quite different because the intention is different um and you know again one needs to ask themselves you know what do you think is ultimately more harmful asking someone to undress and dress differently um uh, to be less modest or to be more modest, which one is ultimately more harmful? In terms of its impact on society as a whole. Yes, exactly. Yes, not on, not just on the individual. Yeah, I think that's really important. And um, so, Melissa, you know, why why are limits necessary? Why do we need to have limits in terms of um, the way that we act, um, consent, um, dress, all of these things? Why are limits necessary? Yeah, I think Anne-Marie was talking about what what is harmful. And Mm -hmm. I think with this, it's like with every action, there's always a reaction or a consequence. Mm -hmm. And of course, what's happening in France is very dire. Um, You know, now, today it's the abaya and before it was the hijab or the headscarf um, in schools, which has been banned or not allowed. Um, The abaya being that, sorry, the loose outer garment or the dress, which many Muslim women all over the world may choose to wear it in its various different cultural ways and designs. But even um, previous, uh, prior to this situation in France, the caliph of the Ahdiya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masroon Ahmed, um, His Holiness, he 
reminds um, us all that actually going too far in this sort of authoritarian guise of secularism will actually have far worse ramifications um, than what we're seeing now. And I just want to quote something that he said, and I quote, the tragic reality is that those who consider themselves the most civilized and progressive people of the modern world fail to understand the immense harm and far-reaching consequences of the immodesty and vulgarity that pervades to, that pervades today's society. God knows better when, but one day they will surely realize the error of their ways and will admit that, that the liberalism has gone too far. But by then, it will be extremely difficult for them to establish higher morals in society. Thus, it's the duty of all Ahmadi Muslims to ensure that they stand up for what is right and to have the courage of their convictions, end quote. And of course, we can unpack that. And it is a very powerful quote um, that His Holiness has has stated there. But to be honest, I personally feel like we're already seeing that mm. now, how that liberalism has actually gone too far in, in more ways than one. Yeah, definitely. And Marie? So I definitely agree with everything Melissa is saying as well. And I think limits, of course, are necessary. We have limits throughout society within the legal system to try and keep... Um, people's behavior in check in terms of not breaking the law and I mean as a mother you know we're all mothers on this show so Mm -hmm. if you can relate as well you know if you have a child and raise that child without any limits in society then you know I dare you to predict that they will grow up a completely socialized successful and functioning adult in society you know, if they are even, you know, alive past past their fifth birthday without any mm-hmm. limits, you know, at the end yeah. of the day, children are impulsive, they're emotionally volatile sometimes, and unaware of the dangers of society. And so limits are necessary to protect a child who is unaware of the dangers and to help nurture their potential, you know, by socializing them and by teaching them how to interact with other children and adults in an appropriate way. Um, and this is all helped by setting limits. You know, we don't urinate in the living room, for instance, or in the swimming pool or, you know, anywhere outside of the bathroom when at home. You know, we don't touch fire. We don't touch broken glass. You know, the list goes on. And so limits and boundaries are needed to keep you safe and also to teach you how to navigate social relationships. Um, And so adults need to understand limits in our own social interactions. You know, it seems it seems men need re-educating about what limits are acceptable with women, but women also need to understand their limits and how, you know, how best to facilitate and play their part in society as well in this particular situation. Um, and by inculcating the sentiment that women and girls can do whatever they want, pretty much, and anything that happens to them has has you know no part they they have no part to play you know in the whole interaction is naive and dangerous Mm. um we don't live in a utopia at the end of the day and we can't raise girls thinking that behaving a certain way will not result in a reaction you know among men who are not morally trained we can't assume men are are you know men that you're familiar with are morally trained you can't assume that um, so you should, in fact, ins- assume that they're not morally trained and you proceed accordingly. It's a bit like riding a bicycle in the in a way, like you're always taught when you're riding a bike on the road, you need to assume the car can't see you yeah. um, to be, 
to to keep yourself safe so in this way you know women need to need a bit of a reality check i think personally but men also need a lot of re-education okay but does i mean does that mean that women you know should be responsible for for example the sexual harassment against them or that if one isn't dressed modestly or dressed you know not dressed appropriately like we're talking about are they actually asking for trouble or asking to be harassed in some way inappropriately I mean, I think at the end of the day, a crime is a crime. So if if a man commits a crime against a woman, regardless of her condition or what moral you know training she has, otherwise, then you know it, it's a crime and he he should be punished accordingly. Mm-hmm. Um, but we must also, as women, play a part in our society and fulfil our basic commandments, as we you know we outlined. Uh, we or we will outline in the show as well, um, and we can't be naive that to the point that we think that our behaviour and the way we present ourselves in public doesn't impact and influence how society perceives us. Um, you know, being one-sided in our solutions will also do a disservice to the issue. So, if you just focus on the fact that it's a male problem and we only need to educate men to stop doing these things. And I think we will do a disservice to the issue because both men and women need to work together. Um, And if both men and women together can fulfill our responsibilities towards each other in a way which is similarly outlined in the Quran, um, which we'll go through, then you will see a natural sort of curtailment of this plague of sexual sexual violence against women. Um, But both genders need to commit you know, and it can't be a one-sided moral training, like I said. Um, I just wanted to very quickly mention a very interesting uh, narration during the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, where, just to illustrate this point, because the question comes in, you know, if a woman dresses in, in a way that is seen as immodest, is she, quote-unquote, asking for it? So during this instance, he was with some companions and a woman who had a lot of beauty approached the prophet for some advice on some personal matters and um, one of his younger companions began to stare at her because of her beauty and when the prophet noticed this he he put because the companion was sitting behind him he reached his hand behind him and he turned the face of his companion away so that he wouldn't stare at her anymore and he didn't so he didn't critique the woman or ask her to behave any differently it was actually the behavior of his companion that he tried to change so mm-hmm. I think in this instant, it highlights the fact that men men in this particular instance need to lower their gaze and we'll talk about it as well. But, a, but to answer your question directly, a crime is a crime. Mm-hmm. If a man commits a crime against a woman, regardless of what she's wearing or what she's doing, it needs to be punished. But mm-hmm. we need to educate both both members of society. Okay, so you're saying both need to be educated. Um, if she's wearing what a particular clothing, she's definitely not asking for it. It's still a crime if a man um, harasses her in any way. Uh, but she also has a, a responsibility to society as well. Melissa, what do you think? Why can't we just focus on men's training? Why, why is it about both? Yeah, I think, um, so mentioning the Me Too movement, I know Anne-Marie mentioned it before. Um, obviously, it, the world knows about it. It gained world recognition and a lot of media attention was given to that Me Too movement. But when we look deeper and we can see that it resonated and connected with many, if not most women, had a lot of sympathy for the women that went through that. But we also have to consider that men are also required to be fully engaged too, in order for society to change quickly and decisively. 
because if like Anne-Marie said just to reiterate that point that it can't be one-sided it can't just be half the population um otherwise you'd never have lasting change on this issue yeah it means it's basically almost a 50 50 society in terms of the population of men and women if you only have one half of that population actually doing something you're never going to make a change so you need to have both on board yeah Thank you. Um, You are listening to Pathway to Peace on the Voice of Islam radio station. And today we're discussing the issue of consent. Is there some clarity or has the line been blurred? Okay, so I want to move the topic slightly to consider the role of feminine feminism in this whole issue. Melissa, I mean, feminism is a huge part in today's society. um, But what exactly do we mean when we talk about feminism? And what part does it play in this particular issue that we're discussing today? So, According to the dictionary, the the dictionary definition of feminism, according to the Oxford Dictionary, states that the advocacy of women's rights on the basis of the equality of the sexes. That's the dictionary definition of feminism. Um, So Islam, according to that textbook dictionary definition, would most definitely agree that women's rights have clearly been defined and upheld in the highest regard and that women and men are to be looked upon as equal and should have equal opportunity. But nowadays, feminism means lots of different things to different people. Mm. Um, I remember doing a unit on this at university about feminism. And there's so many labels and forms of feminism now that it's very difficult to say that there is actually one type. There's things called intersectional uh, feminism. There's radical feminism, postmodernist feminism. I think there's actually a really long list on Wikipedia about how many different kinds of feminism there are. Um, and it's it's almost like going to an ice cream shop and choosing a flavour according to kind of what your taste is. And obviously, I can't go into all of them, but it seems a little bit overwhelming um, to just go and cherry pick what kind of version of feminism you like. And because there's no uniformity of what feminism actually is, it almost seems a little bit, from my personal perspective, it seems a little bit pointless for everyone to believe in different versions of it because there's no there's no unity. Then you're not you're not working towards necessarily the same the same um, end goal of yeah. equal equal women's rights. Yeah. So, so what's the Islamic view of these concepts? So Islam is quite clear that despite there being equality between um, the genders, men and women, there is nature and responsibilities which are inherently different um, between men and women. Um, just to use an example of the Holy Prophet, uh, Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him, he described women as by nature are like a rib bone. Mm-hmm. And this is from Bukhari, the source. And they have the ability, women, to grow and to nurture and to create life. And therefore, a woman's nature and capacity naturally differs from that of men who are mm-hmm. unable to, to do that. So when men and women are equal, their biology, their nature and responsibilities in within Islam are understood as different. However, albeit they have equal value and importance. And I think that's the key point of sort of the the version of um, feminism, if you want to label it. But from an Islamic perspective, that although men and women are equal, that their roles and responsibilities are different. Um, So I just want to quote something from the Holy Quran about the status of men and women. Um, It's from chapter nine, verse 71. And I quote, And the believers, men and women, are friends of one another. They enjoin good and forbid evil and observe prayer and pay the zakat and obey Allah and his messenger. It is these on whom Allah will have mercy. Surely Allah is mighty wise. 
Um, so I think from this, we can see that there are many verses, actually. This is just one of them from the Holy Quran, which specifically mentions men and women being equal or showing that it's um, a symbiotic relationship between both. Mm-hmm. And Islam recognizes that there are certain roles and responsibilities which are sort of higher or more more important than one another. Um, as members of the Ahmadi Muslim community, we believe that His Holiness Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian was the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, whose advent in the latter days was prophesied by the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him. And he not only came to revive Islam, but he has come as the spiritual reformer for all divine faiths. And I just wanted to quote something that he said, the promised Messiah on whom be peace said, uh, how he described the husband's role within a marriage as being like a servant to his wife, in as much that the responsibility that Islam lays upon the husband is so heavy that it makes him like a servant of his wife, mm-hmm. um, end quote. So I just, I just wanted to pause on that point and think about how many husbands in 2023 in the West would describe themselves as a servant, and I don't mean in a sarcastic context, mm. um, as, for their job as a financial breadwinner or provider is actually there to support their wife doing the primary role of morally raising and upbringing their children. Mm. Um, it, it's a different perspective perhaps from what the wider society may may look at a marriage and, and the role and the context of, of raising children and having a family. Um, and I think in this material society that we live in, which places most emphasis, I think, on money making um, or money making potential, it society generally in the West can tend to put down women who may choose to stay at home to raise their children, as one example. And when we're just on this point of feminism, I feel like it's important just to um, add in this point about mothers who... Um, of course, we know as mothers amongst ourselves um, and generally anyone who's listening who is a mother, we all know that there's a lot that a mother does which isn't necessarily accounted for on a wider societal level. It's not, you know, no one's standing on the sidelines giving you a clap for everything yeah. that you're doing, not that we would expect it. But it's it's important to note that this, this role of being a mother um, isn't one that's ne- necessarily celebrated um, in wider society. Um, as much as Islam might put mothers on a pedestal and put give mothers a high regard and a high status within Islam. So I think when we're talking from an Islamic perspective, what others call equality, we might describe it better as equity between the sexes and actually mm-hmm. looking at the individual circumstances of individual people and ensuring that everyone is fulfilling their responsibilities, but also receiving the rights that they are entitled to. And this has a special word in Islam. It's called hukuk al-ibad, which is the rights that are owed to God's creation. And this is um, reflective of everyone within yeah. um, in an Islamic context or not. Yes, yeah, so it's looking specifically what you're saying there is that because of the physical um, makeup of a man and a woman, um, there are certain roles and responsibilities that they have according to their physicality. And therefore... Yeah. Any, in any way, whenever you are talking about the rights of women, you need equity rather than equality. Because yeah. if you give equality of everything, you're actually not being equal to them because of the physical makeup, the fact that they can um, bear children, the fact that they have to feed children, whatever the, the situation might be, you're not actually taking that into consideration if you just look at the equality of the sexes rather than equity between the sexes. Have I got you? Yeah. Is, that, is that kind of what you're saying? Okay, great. I think so, so yeah. Yeah, thank yeah. you. So... um. If we can just move on a little bit here, but 
you know, we're talking, and I think it's really important because motherhood is is a huge um, aspect of um, Islamic society um, and generally society as a whole. Society won't function unless we have mothers and mothers keep having children. Um, But, you know, what if a woman doesn't want to be a mother? You know, what if that's not interesting to her? Shouldn't we as women be able to do whatever we want with, you know, out any repercussions? Shouldn't that be the case? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to hold a gun to your head and force you to be a mother. Mm. <laughs> you really yeah. don't want to be a mother. Um, I think, you know, the emphasis in Islam in motherhood is because most women will be mothers in, in their lifetimes, you know, realistically speaking. Yeah. Um uh, they they will be mothers, you know, whether they have always dreamed to be mothers or, you know, whatever the context, most women, women will become mothers at some point. Um, and the, the difficulty that mothers go through in rearing, um, carrying and raising children is one that's very much recognized in Islam uh, and it's very much rewarded and put in high regard. Um, but, you know, in terms of whether women should be able to do whatever they want without any re- repercussions in society at large, when we're bringing it back to the kind of context of behavior between men and women, there's definitely a tangible feeling in the air that women can do no wrong now. Um, and you have to believe all women, you know, with sexual assault allegations and merely the threat of an allegation can be completely ruinous for a man now. Um, you know, he doesn't need to be tried and convicted in court now. He's tried and convicted on social media and presumed mm. guilty, you know, uh, despite there being, you know, no proof necessarily. You know, his entire reputation is destroyed by a single accusation. Mm. Um, so it's difficult, you know, in the in these types of situations where laying an accusation of sexual harassment and rape is something that... Uh, strikes a chord with most women on some level. You know, many honourable women would struggle to understand why a woman would ever publicly lie lie about such a terrible thing. And so, you know, we assume she's telling telling the truth, but we we still have to let the court system, you know, go through the whole process. And I think the culture of women not being able to do any wrong at the moment is a really it's it's very tricky and it's it's a real problem you know ultimately women can't do whatever they want in society they can't kill or rob or commit fraud etc cetera, etc cetera. so the issue here is is that where culturally women were not permitted to get away with certain things around 100 years ago they are now able mm. to get away with it and in islam this boundary does not shift and you can never shift it according to the likes of culture you know, so the requirement of believing women in Islam is to lower their gaze, to draw their outer gar- garments, to cover their chest and to guard their private parts. I mean, those are the very basic uh, requirements for a woman in, when, when in public. And the requirement of men, which is actually stipulated before the command to women, is to restrain mm. their eyes and guide their, guard their private parts. And, you know, by simply asking believing men and women to lower their gaze and dress modestly uh, and guard their private parts, both publicly and privately, um, you know, it mean, it rules out a lot of behaviours we see in society now, which has led to free, you know, free intermixing and open relationships before marriage, which you can, you can uh, do a root cause analysis and see that as being a major cause to the breakdown of male and female relationships in society now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, 
So you are listening to Pathway to Peace on the Voice of Islam radio station. And today we are discussing the issue of consent. Is there some clarity or has the line been blurred? So from the discussion so far, we can see that, you know, the social boundaries regarding interaction between men and women have been blurred. And there is much confusion about what is and what is not acceptable. Um, in order to, and, and obviously, and we've looked um, briefly at the Islamic guidance on this as well. In order to clarify the situation, should the onus be on men? Or on women, Melissa. I think both, uh, okay. both definitely both. The um, the Holy Quran deals with this. I know Anne Marie's mentioned um, about um, the commandment given in chapter twenty four, verses thirty one to thirty two, where both genders, but men are instructed first to restrain their eyes and guard their private parts. And I think for a functioning society, both men and women, boys and girls, um, the the rights of all must not just coincide or be in a battle of power which I think we can we can safely say that that is the situation today in Western society anyway, that it seems to be a battle of power. But for a more harmonious and peaceful society, which Islam puts forward, there has to be a collective effort of duty and responsibility. And everyone has a role and a part to play in that and, and playing their own due diligence to uphold that, that with peace and with dignity. Um, I just wanted to quote something that the um, caliph of the Anthony Muslim community his Holiness, Sajid Mirzam, Musroud Ahmed, um, has said, and I quote, worldly people may claim that exposing one's body, dressing suggestively or bringing sexual behaviour into the public arena are signs of a progressive society and one in which freedom of expression is valued. However, they could not be more wrong. All Amdi Muslims, whether men or women, whether young or old, must understand that from a religious perspective, such behaviour is the height of immorality and cannot be tolerated by religious people who have pledged to prioritise their faith over all worldly matters. So I think this is quite self-explanatory and, yeah, and yeah. quite summarising of everything that we everything have been speaking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, linking on to this, and this is talking about, you know, the fact that within the public arena, um, you know, what's going on in society, people, people are not following certain morals not following certain guidance and what we are seeing as we've been discussing today is that the boundaries um are getting all blurred everybody's confused people don't know what's going on so how has this blurring of boundaries actually affected the peace of society as a whole yeah i think like you said everyone is confused and nobody know, actually knows where they do stand um i don't really wish to delve into where we are on a societal level too much in terms of specifically about gender dysmorphia and, um, and dysphoria, because this, th that would be in a whole show yeah. uh, or maybe in series itself. Mm. But I do feel like young people are so massively disadvantaged and actually disserviced by what I feel is a very pervasive, um, what is branded as progressive and liberal, but it's an agenda that everything must be accepted and celebrated. Um I feel that young people are going through very irreversible life-changing procedures because there is no clear model of morality that is being followed in, in society today. And this shift in societal norms that we've spoken about in terms of um, feminism, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's drastically changed in this social media era. And the fabric of society is, is shifting so much from an Islamic perspective, or moving away from that. Um, is very deeply damaging, especially to the next generation who are consistently and constantly exposed to it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, so I mean, I mean, something that we know about Islamic 
in general is something that um, that you know Islam is very adamant um, about people's rights. Okay, that there's, there's always justice, and it's adamant that one group's rights don't encroach on another's or affect the peace of society. So then, what is a healthy balance in this regard? If we're talking about um, the rights of women, the rights of men, um, where's the balance here? Yeah, I think, of course, there has to be some sort of universal truths or laws based on what's dangerous or damage limitation of the physical and moral fabric of society. And Anne-Marie mentioned before, you know, there's this universal wrongs that we can all accept. We don't kill, we don't steal, mm-hmm. we can't commit fraud. Um, you know, the intentional, the intentional killing of an innocent person, that's universally accepted as wrong or bad. And has because it has very serious consequences. And I think in the same way, the moral fabric of society and upholding peace between communities and families then needs to be ruled so that everyone knows where they stand. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that you know within Islam we have segregation between uh, men and women. Um, this was introduced as a way for men and women to live in a more peaceful society mm-hmm. uh, with these limits and boundaries put in place uh, to prevent free mixing. Um, as we know the consequences of, you know, extramarital or illicit relationships, we know that the the, the impact of this that this can have on breaking down families, yeah. um, and marriage, of course, holds people accountable for their responsibilities over their families as yeah. well. So, I mean, with relationships between men and women, you know, what is? I mean, I'm not talking necessarily about husband and wife here, but what is socially acceptable according to Islam? Are you not it's supposed to speak it... to any man ever? Or is it, you know, is a woman and man <laughs> never supposed to speak to each other? I mean, what's what's the situation here? Yeah, of course not. I mean, Islam is a very pragmatic religion. It doesn't suggest, you know, that men and women need to live in isolation and be like um, you know, monks or um never encounter one another except for marriage. Um Islam recognized that in a public space um and private, there should be respectful decorum between men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, both publicly and privately, and that if men and women must meet and dis- and discuss or come together, there should be, um, ideally either a physical barrier, um, or a separation between the parties wherever that is possible, um, and separate men and men spaces and separate women spaces are to be encouraged from an Islamic point of view yeah. wherever it's possible. So that includes bathrooms, prayer spaces, um, whenever men and women um, meet on a practical level. And I think just to add to that as well, I think um, one of the ways in which the hijab and modest dress facilitates, um, you know, interacting in in public. So, for example, me working in hospital, you know, the hijab and dressing modestly does help facilitate that engagement with the opposite gender as well. So, I mean, that is one of the core purposes of wearing it in public um, is to constantly remind yourself of who you are and your behavior and you know, being optimized, but so it's like that physical barrier that Melissa just mentioned. Yes, that as physical. Well, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. That could be interpreted as as that as well. Um. So having, but more specifically, having the separate spaces, as Melissa mentioned, um. You know, even in the West, this is being recognised as really important for women. Um, and a writer called Karen Ingala Smith, you know, she has three decades of experience in researching violence against women. And her recent book called Defending Women's Spaces, you know, is dedicated to survivors of domestic violence and um, to the preservation of female only spaces. 
uh, and in particular women's refuges. And she argues that the female sex have a unique set of needs which are often not met, you know, in mixed sex settings. Uh, and that after encountering, you know, abuse in particular, and I quote what she writes, women need the space to heal, share, acknowledge and celebrate. Being in a woman only uh, space simply feels different, which I think we can all speak to with regards to this particular quote when she writes it in her book. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, this is something that Islam has um, set in, set, um, in since the beginning I mean, it's, this is written in the Holy Quran um, in Surah Al-Azab, which is chapter 33, that when you speak to um, the wives of the Prophet, peace be upon him, speak from behind a curtain as that is pure for you. And that then um, is obviously um, that goes that that commandment goes to all women, that when you speaking to men on and this is specifically on a personal basis, like not in a professional manner, when you're speaking to them on a personal level or in a social level try to maintain that barrier or that distance or that physical, some kind of physical barrier between you and also allow women to have their own space, which you are not encroaching, which you are not going into. Um, Melissa, you, you were t- when we were discussing earlier, you were talking a little bit and just if you could just briefly um, clarify this for our listeners, this concept of um, mehram, which is, you know, who who is a woman um, allowed to mingle with freely um, and who is she not allowed to mingle with freely? If you just quickly just give us a little bit of insight into that. Yeah, so for a Muslim, there's a category of people called mahram, as you mentioned, and it's derived from the from the word haram, which means prohibited. So this mahram category means everybody, a woman or a man, um, would be forbidden from marrying. So, of course, it would include your father, your brothers, your uncles, your sons, your nephews, mm-hmm. anyone outside of that category would then be a non-mahram for which physical touch with the opposite gender is not allowed. Yeah. So th- this de- definition is very clear cut um, and it's, it works both ways. Yes, for men I was going to say, women. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it it's works not both just, ways, you know, yeah, yeah. Not just for women, but for men too. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, the only, so the only person that a woman is allowed to be touched by in an Islamic um, community or within Islam is, or the only person who is not a blood relative is her husband. And I think that's really clear so that we know that the only woman that can, the only man that can touch a woman is a husband who is not a blood relative. And that he is the husband via a contract of marriage. Other than that, it's only her brother, her son, her father, or someone that could maybe, you know, touch her hand or whatever else or be close to her without her needing that physical barrier or that barda. So I think that's really important to clarify. And I think also, I mean, one of the other things which is really important is that this concept of the free mingling of men and women, you know, the impact it's had has been, you know, something that God mentioned in the Holy Quran 1400 years ago in, in chapter 24, Surah Nur, which was mentioned earlier about men and women's gaze. Um, this surah is specifically talking about the relationship and the inter- social interaction between men and women and the fact that people have disregarded this social, the line of social interaction um, and the fact that this is such a delicate, a delicate area and it will be ignored in later days. People will ignore it, which is why it's been so it's been emphasized that this particular chapter is obligatory, even though as Muslims, we know the whole Quran is obligatory for us. We need to follow all the commandments. But specifically within this chapter, it says this, highlighting to us the importance of this relationship between men and women. And if this barrier breaks down, the effect that that will have on the peace of society. So this is something that God knew about that these issues would occur and he's given us ways and methods within the Quran in order to deal with this as well. So 
Melissa, if we could just move on um, a little bit further. Um, you were talking earlier about um, something that the um, president of the MD Muslim Women's um, Association um, mentioned in, in a particular forum. Could you just highlight that to us a little bit? Yeah, I just wanted to quote something that she said earlier this year. Um, and she said, and I quote, Islam has given us, and she's speaking about women here, has given us safe spaces where we can express our beauty but more importantly, has given us that sense of self-worth and focus on inner beauty, education, and what we can contribute in this society and on how we can shape our future, end quote. And I think that's such a beautiful um, summary of um, mm. women's spaces um, and defending women's spaces, actually. And the shift of value where women can find their worth and value is very important, especially in this in the society that we live in, where uh, beauty, money, and vulgarity are often or the lowering of one's modesty is 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 seen as more desirable in in the West. Um, so this this provides a different perspective on that. Yeah, definitely. And and Marie, any final words from you on this topic? Yeah, just to add to to what Melissa was mentioning. So modesty is highlighted a lot uh, within Islam for both uh, men and women as well. But it's not just about the outer covering or the hijab, but modesty is also about a concept called haya in Islam, which is um, kind of translated as modesty or shyness. Um, and the feeling that makes a person avoid doing something wrong or that's disliked and con contradicts the values of decency. So, you know, I mean, from my own experience, I'm more conscious of the fact that because I wear a hijab or I dress modestly, that people will identify me as Muslim. And so I need to leave a good impression on those people around me who are predominantly non-Muslim and who likely have a negative perception, given the media narrative around Muslims in general. So I think, you know, modesty and the hijab in in particular for women is a personal reminder for me to be the best person and the best citizen I can be um, for society. Thank you and thank you for that both of you. So now only for time reasons we will need to end here. I want to thank you um, both of you today ladies for helping us to get to this point and thank our listeners for staying with us on this journey of discovery and if you would like to join the discussion please tweet us at Voice of Islam UK using the hashtag VOIPeace. And until next time, may the peace and blessings of God be upon you.